Good Tuesday morning to you. I am Michael Miano, your host for the next hour or so here on Bible Beacon Broadcast. You know, one of the things, uh, as we go through this season of Advent and we continue to look with expectation to the birth of Christ and receiving those Christmas gifts on that glorious Christmas morning, one of our goals should be to grow into Christ. And hopefully as you're tuning into this show, as you're listening to podcasts or reading through whatever material you might be reading that is God-glorifying, that is your goal, to grow into the reality and the, the full expression of Jesus Christ. That's what I seek to do this morning as you tune in to this broadcast, and that's what I seek to do in my life, and the, ultimately the goal. As last week, I believe I laid out to you all on this broadcast, the goal is to grow into the reality of Jesus Christ in this world, to grow into the expression of his kingdom in our world. So with that, today in our show, I invite you, follow me as I follow Christ. Because at the end of the day, a real man bows down to the authority of Jesus Christ. Here's a song we're going to listen to real quickly and we'll get right into today's show. Whoa, whoa, if you can't follow, you can't never leave. Hey, you don't run a thing, so you run into a king. Hey, who I follow, who they follow when they follow me? A real man bows down to authority. Only real, I'm a man, but I guess that's just my gender. When it comes to manhood, man, we leave it to our sisters. What a tragedy, travesty. Passive in our actions, living absentee. Sad and weak, but asking them to marry me, we wait. Left, hit the deck, saying next, what a Beating on my chest and thinking I am strong Go flex If you gon' take charge for the Lord Then you lead out Being one who serves like the one who told to bleed out Submitting to authority Government that's over me And to the Father who is sovereign Real men stay orderly I learned to submit Because God gives them command Wife it follows me Because I follow him with holes in his hand if you can't follow, you can't never leave. Hey, you don't run a thing till you run into the king. Hey, who I follow, who they follow when they follow me. A real man bow down to authority. Bow down, bow down to authority. Bow down, bow down to authority. Hey, who I follow, who they follow when they follow me. Bow down, bow down. Hey, I don't care what they tell you. I can't try to sell you. You was made in the image. Ship is in your sails, dude. You are not an animal or just a foolish beast. You are made to oversee the creation of the king. Now, flashing your badge like a cop just got some power. You should be a tool to encourage and empower. And stop running around with women like a little dog in heat. If she disrespects herself, show her who she's supposed to be. She a queen, and the scriptures say she is a weaker vessel. More like fire shatter. Doesn't mean she's in it at
A.W. Pink brings forth the thought that in speaking about the deep counsel of God, the deep wisdom of God, this calls for a heart filled with awe as well as a sense of our utter unworthiness. And also, um, J.C. Riley, who uh, obviously responsible for the Riley Study Bible, uh, he has this to say. He says, I warn every reader, um, everybody that it seeks to approach the topic of atonement, to beware of quack medicines in religion. Beware of supposing that penitence, reformation, formality, and priestcraft can ever give you peace with God. They cannot do it. It is not in them. The man who says they can must be ignorant of two things. He cannot know the length and breadth of human sinfulness. He cannot understand the height and depth of the holiness of God. There never breathed a man or woman who on earth tried to cleanse himself from his sins, and in doing so, obtained relief. And also, William Plummer, an American Presbyterian minister in the 1800s, had this to say, Beware of self-conceit. Beware of all opinions on the subject of atonement, unless you can prove them by the tenor of Scripture. Jesus Christ made sanctification for all the sins of his people. He paid the last farthing of the debt they owed to the broken law and injured government of God. And in him they are complete and have full redemption. So you see, what we're talking about this morning is of that much importance. It, it causes us to reflect upon the holiness and the majesty of our God. It causes us to come under the authority of our God rather than seeking to put man as sovereign. So all of that said, I ask you to join me in prayer this morning as I seek to offer consistency and clarity in regards to this topic of atonement, especially in light of, of a preterist perspective. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning, Lord, uh, thanking you for your grace, thanking for you for salvation and atonement that we have found in Christ, Lord, thanking you for the completeness, the oneness that we can find in Christ. We offer up our praise, Lord. We offer up our prayer that we will continue to Walk worthy of what we have and what we have received in and through Jesus Christ, Lord. And that we might be able to make this known with clarity and consistency, Lord. We give you all the glory. We thank you for your spirit that makes these things known to us. And we raise up our praises to your holy name. In and through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So, a couple weeks ago I had uh, Brother Paul Rakowicz join me on the broadcast. And uh, he explained his view of atonement. And I thought he took a uh, rather interesting perspective of Hebrews chapter 9, putting it as Christ coming in the flesh, that that was Christ entering into the holy tabernacle, tabernacling with us in his flesh. And uh, I, I do believe I find that a bit wanting in Scripture, and I, I hope uh, maybe in, in a couple weeks we'll be able to have other uh, speakers, possibly Don Preston, I've been talking to him about it, and um, others that might find a slightly different perspective of Hebrews chapter 9 and Christ's priestly work. Um, today I'm, I'm hoping to offer some clarity on that, and I hope uh, that if you listen, you might send me an email or send me a Facebook message or post, and let me know where you kind of think I'm at, uh, or gauge me on this topic. Because again, as I mentioned at the beginning, it is my, my honest desire, my honest hope to uh, approach these matters clearly, consistently, and uh, contextually without um, my own personal perspectives, because again... Um, Human speculation amounts to nothing. Actually, this morning, I found a quote as I was reading, and uh, I had quoted it on Facebook, but I want to share it with you all on this broadcast this morning. And this is a quote from A.W. Pink, and he says, Human reasoning is futile speculation. Or, I'm sorry, human reasoning is futile. Speculation is profane. The opinions of men are worthless. Thus, we are absolutely shut up to what God has been pleasured to make known to us in his word. And that's what I seek to be, uh, you know, consistent and clear and contextual at, is interpreting God's wisdom through his word. Not my personal understanding, not my personal view, not what's in line with what I feel comfortable teaching or preaching. Uh, yesterday, I had a great opportunity to sit down with a fellow minister and just talk about the things of God, which should be something we always enjoy. And, uh, you know, where there are areas we might disagree or we might not have come to agreement yet, um, we can have that joy of finding a unity in the things that we can. And yesterday I sought to lay before this uh, other man of God how I understand the full gospel, the full counsel of God. And um, again, I, I do, I, I defend preterism. I believe that preterism stands at the front line of a current reformation happening in the body of Christ. So that being said, I, I believe atonement and understanding the salvific purpose, the redemptive history of God's people, and how that's called to affect us today is so important. And that's what I want to... Uh, 
explain today. So first thing I want to talk about actually this morning is um, I, as I'm filled with awe of the um, sacrificial work of Christ and uh, all that Christ came to do, I want to make clear that I never intend to take away from the cross. You see, a lot of times when pushing atonement to the events of AD 70, which you know I, I believe in, I believe that atonement was complete with the events of AD 70, and I'll draw that out this morning. In doing so, a lot of times that people will accuse me of taking away from the cross. And uh, sure enough, I, I read this this morning from A.W. Pink, and it caused me to obviously want to make clear that I do not take away from the cross. He says this, Great is the mystery of godliness, quoting 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Amazing beyond all, infin beyond all finite concept is that transaction that was consummated at Golgotha. There we behold the Prince of Life dying. There we gaze upon the Lord of Glory, made a spectacle of unutterable shame. There we see the Holy One of God made sin for his people. There we witness the author of all blessings made a curse for the worms of the earth. It is the mystery of mysteries that he who is none other than Emmanuel should stoop so low as to join the infinite majesty of the deity with the lowest degree of abasement that was possible to descend into. He could not have gone lower and be God. Well did the Puritan Sib say, God, to show his love to us, showed himself God in this, that he could be God and go so low as to die. And that's the event we see happening upon the cross, that what they would call the great transaction through history, where all the sin that was within God's people was imputed to Christ on the cross in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. Being that we're... Uh, Celebrating atonement, I mean celebrating Advent at this point, I, I thought it would be important to look through some Old Testament prophecies pointing to the suffering Messiah. And in doing so, I, I believe it will give us some clarity in regards to the full atonement that Christ had come to bring. So if you will, I'll ask you to turn with me. First we'll go to Isaiah chapter 1. And uh, going through Advent, what we've been doing is reading a lot of the Messianic promises, um, promised to the to the first advent of Christ, to his birth, and, and what the Messiah would bring. And I believe as you read through those prophecies in their proper context and understand what's being said by the prophet, you begin to see the full context of what is being drawn out by what the Messiah is coming to accomplish. So here I'm going to start in Isaiah chapter 1, and uh, I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit. I just want to read uh, the beginning chapter, maybe a couple of first verses, and then I'm going to jump over to uh, verse... 10, and then I'm going to go to 18. I'm kind of just going to jump through Isaiah chapter 1 to make a point here. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up. So again, right here, this is beautiful. Um, as if it didn't clearly expound upon this when Moses called Israel heaven and earth. Here we have a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem being called heaven and earth. That's amazing. Amen. <laughs> so, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought, me, brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, a donkey knows its master, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again? As you continue in your rebellion, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or with a bandage, saw or softened with oil. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields of strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughters of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. You see, right here immediately, and then in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ears to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of fat of fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. When you come to me, appear before me. Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthlessness, offerings, no longer incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity 
and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here you have God speaking to Jerusalem and Judah about their rebellion, about their turning away from the law, turning away from the truth of God, and going into sinful rebellion. What does this remind you of? It should remind you of what happened in the garden. The same exact thing. God gives Adam a command. Adam fails to obey the command, turns away from God, even hides from God, and thus lies to God, blames the woman for his sin, and God provides a covering. You see, this is exactly what's happening with Israel throughout the Old Testament. And uh, I don't want to go too much into the covering, but however, <laughs> that's what atonement means. Kafar means to cover. That's what we're talking about here when we're talking about atonement, is how has God shown himself faithful in covering his people? Again, we, we get a, uh, a picture, a motif of that in the garden, that we see uh, you know, Adam sins, Adam goes against what God had commanded him, and thus God covers Adam. Adam seeks to cover himself. If you remember, God, Adam and Eve cover themselves with fig leaves, which I believe is a very uh, clear picture of a man covering himself with his own endeavors, his own works, his own righteousness. Um, which can never satisfy. So what it was pointing to is the need to be covered by something from God. And we know that God gives Israel a, tempor a temporal covering, the law, that is the schoolmaster that is going to lead them to Christ. Because the law in and of itself, as explained by the Apostle Paul, cannot clear man from sin. The law does not provide forgiveness. The law does not provide atonement. The law provided a temporary covering, just like those animal skins that the Lord gave Adam and Eve provided a temporary covering which would usher them in obviously into the law of Moses, their descendants, and then ultimately would push them to the need for the atonement through the Messiah. That's what we're reading about in our Old Testament. So when you open up your Bible, it's important to understand the context of atonement and uh, not make it a uh, overly personal thing. Because again, what we're talking about is God giving a covenant to Israel, Israel being rebellious in regards to that covenant, and God needing and Israel needing an atonement from God, which, yes, later on will be point to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will come to share in this eternal inheritance. And that's actually something we have to get to the bottom of. What is the eternal inheritance? I, I believe there's a, uh, due to the futuristic tendencies within the Christian church, I believe we've, uh, A, individualized all the promises, and B, We've made them about a reality that we look for rather than a reality that the Old Covenant Jew would have looked for. And again, I'll be expounding upon that this morning. So continuing here in Isaiah chapter 1, looking to this promise and this prophecy of Christ, I want to read, um, continue reading actually through this chapter. It says, How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness, once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your your drink diluted with water, your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away all your dross as with lyre, and as with lie, I'm sorry, and will remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges at first, and your counselors at the, as were at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, and her repentant ones with righteousness. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired, and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaves fade away, or as a garden that has no water. The strong man will become tender, his work will become a spark, thus they will burn together and there will be none to quench them. Sounds awfully like eternal judgment, amen? That's, this is your, your passage of leading you into the promises of the Messiah. If I could ask you to turn with me to um, Isaiah chapter 9, a very famous passage that we uh, commonly read in reference to the Messiah. Here's a promise. 
But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea and the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. You see, here is that promise. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with gladness of harvest. As men rejoice... When they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of Tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. There will be no end or increase, um, no end to the increase of his government of peace. On the throne of David, under his or of his kingdom, to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The Lord sends a message against Jacob, and it falls on Israel, and all the people know it. That is Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, asserting in pride and arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord raises against them adversaries from resin and spurs on their enemies the Arameans on the east and the Philistines on the west, and they will devour Israel with gasping jaws. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hands are still stretched out. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush, in a single day. The head is the elder and the honorable man. The prophet who teaches the falsehood is the tale. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who guided by them are brought to confusion. Therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans and their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and, evil and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. You see, one of the things I'm drawing out in Isaiah is that the promise of redemption, the promise of righteousness coming to God's people, is going to come with judgment. Again, we see judgment happening on that cross when all shame and sin was put on Jesus. And Jesus refers back to the Father and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet it's pushing us to the redemption of God's people. Again, if you were to look at the atonement of Leviticus, and you were to look at that day of atonement uh, for the high priest, you would see that the high priest offers a sacrifice, but that atonement is not complete, that the sacrifice is dead. Yes, judgment has now been put upon that sacrifice. Right, that, that all the sins of the people of Israel were put on that sacrifice. However, the full atonement, the full glories, would not be understood until the high priest came out and said, you have been covered. You see, saying it is finished in the temple, Telestai, is just declaring that the, the full imputation of sin upon this sacrifice, God's judgment against sin, is now finished. It has been put upon the sacrifice. However, it is pointing to the glorious reality that is going to be seen when the high priest comes out. Again, another motif we see and a clear analogy we see is the exodus from Egypt. Again, when they slaughtered the sacrifice and they wiped that blood on the doorpost to allow that angel of death to pass over their homes. We don't believe that that was the full reality of the promise when they put the the blood on the door, amen? That was them exercising their faith in the promise. And then the full reality would come when that angel indeed did pass over them. They were covered by that blood. The angel of death passed over them, and they were found righteous. In AD 70, the Christians believed in the truth of the resurrected Christ, believed in the truth as preached through the gospel, that Christ had been raised from the dead, had been slaughtered for their sacrifice, and they believed in the faithfulness of their God to cover them as judgment came upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And sure enough, it is said that no Christian died in Jerusalem. The Christians were wise and fled to Pella and were preserved by the glory of God. They were covered by listening and acting in their faith and acting in the atonement that covered the people of God and called the holy elect of God to be called out from the wickedness of the world around them. We see this as a motif throughout the entire Bible. When judgment would come... You know, Enoch would be rescued, captured away to God. Elijah would be, go up as a whirlwind when famine would come upon the land and judgment upon the land. The people of God would be rescued from Egypt. The people of God would be rescued from the Roman Jewish war. People of God today are rescued from the despair and death of this world.
that death has no power over the believer. Do you believe that? That's the power of atonement. So, in Isaiah 11, let's continue reading. In Isaiah 11, we begin to read a very famous prophecy of Christ. Uh, it's read continually throughout it, um, throughout Advent. Sorry about that. But let's, let's read verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not, have, he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with the righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt around his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the lion, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the young calf and the lion will, and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their, lion, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the nursing cobra will play by the hole of the, co I'm sorry, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt nor destroy all in my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assembly and assemble the banished ones of Israel, and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes, the Philistines of the west. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab, and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind, and he will strike into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. You see, again, he's comparing it. He's bringing it to that. So, Again, atonement was declared when this full reality of the lion and the lamb laying together, which is, again is uh, the peace that is spoken of in Ephesians chapters 2 through 3, um, that Christ is the peace that brings together Jew and Gentile, lion and lamb. You see these two that war with one another. That's what we're, we're getting the reality of in Isaiah 11, our peace. The peace that would uh, break the hostility, the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And ultimately bring them in one and save them as a remnant. Raise up Christ as a banner that will call all nations to atonement, to Christ, to the fullness of God in Christ. You see, that's, that's the Messianic promise. You go to Isaiah chapter 56 or Isaiah 53, 56. You go to Zechariah 13. When we're reading these Messianic promises, it's not talking about everything happening at the cross and nothing else. It's necessitating that there's a already but not yet. Yes, at the cross... The sacrifice is offered. The sins are imputed to that sacrifice. However, there is a still a waiting point, as we see in Hebrews chapter 9, 27 through 20, 28, that uh, there's a waiting point for that salvation to be revealed as Christ came from heaven, his uh, second advent, so to speak. So I say all that because this morning I was uh, reading through John Noe's uh, writings. And John Noe, in his uh, more recent book, The Greater Jesus, has some thoughts about the second appearing of Jesus. And, you know, I, I don't agree with his, uh, what I would call, idealistic perspective of what I, looks more like what the Quakers believe with a realized eschatology, that Christ will appear to us a second time, making this a very personalized promise. And uh, John Noe goes on to note that the second coming has to do with completing our sanctification process, not our atonement process in AD 70. Um, and uh, this person appears to believe in a, Second coming, not in our past, but in our future. And I think John Noe has, has spoken about that. He says that Christ comes and comes again and comes again. And uh, again, that's not what we're talking about. I'm not talking about a realized eschatology of Christ coming into your heart or coming into your world. I'm talking about the events of AD 70, the coming of the Lord as prophesied by Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 24, and First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. That this is what they were waiting for. They were waiting for the, the king of glory to be revealed from heaven in righteous wrath against that old covenant to fully redeem and fully reveal who the sons of God are. See, that's what we're reading about when we read our Bible. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, goes on to note that he knows nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. And there's many people within the church that have hung on that and said, that's all I will preach. 
Then I turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a couple chapters later, and he goes on to note what the gospel is, that it's Christ being buried and, and raising again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and the necessity that the prophecies of the Messiah, as I just showed you, speak to the judgment coming upon Israel. That you know, the lion laying with the lamb, the clarity of God's purposes, his full inaugurated kingdom in this world. That's what the messianic promises speak to. So unfortunately, when all we're doing is preaching the cross, and you know, we're putting everything, all our stock in the cross, so to speak, we um we end up like cutting the prophecies in half. We end up cutting Christ's words in half, as Don Preston has beautifully drawn out in his book Torah to Tell Us. He, Jesus says that heaven and earth will not pass away until every jot and tittle have been fulfilled. Every jot and tittle of the Mosaic Law. Resurrection of the dead, the promise to Israel, is a jot and tittle of the law. The judgment upon Israel is a jot and tittle of the law. And again, these are messianic promises. So if the entire messianic promise has not yet been fulfilled, that entire old covenant has not yet been fulfilled. As I explained yesterday in my detailing of the gospel, that the Gentiles would not have wanted... Israel's God, if Israel's God has not indeed proved himself worthy in bringing the promises that he promised to Israel to them. And that's what we're seeing in Romans chapters 9 and 11, where the Apostle Paul is declaring the promises that belong to Israel, and that he has declared nothing other than those promises as he brings out Acts chapter 24, Acts chapter 26. He even calls it the hope of Israel in Acts chapter 28. That's the gospel, that the promises God has given to Israel will be fulfilled, within that generation. It will all come as they were nearing the ends of the earth, the, the time of consummation, the end of the age that Israel has been living under. Under that present evil age, they were living under law. That age was coming to an end in Paul's day, obviously pointing to the events of AD 70, the destruction of the temple. Jesus alludes to that in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, where he says that, you know, they ask him, when will this be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And he immediately points to the temple. These are the events of AD 70. These are the events of full atonement for the people of God. These are what the Messianic promises are speaking about. So, again, yes, preach Christ and Christ crucified, but yet it was pointing to something else. We can't just take half of Scripture, half of the points that we read in our Bible. If I can uh, now bring you to the New Testament, I'm going to bring you to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll do some reading of verses 8 and 9 here in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, as it was beginning to speak about um, Christ, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to go to verse 1 here. For this reason, speaking about Christ being the, the full glory of God in Hebrews chapter 1, that though God had spoke through the prophets in times past and had made known the prophecies of the Messiah, these were indeed the times that had come upon this generation, was that the messianic promises were be, being fulfilled right before their eyes. You know, as Jesus told his disciples, that these are the times that the prophets and angels have longed for. You know, th these are the things that angels have longed to look into. These are the times that the men of old have spoken about. And that's what's being declared in Hebrews chapter 1. And then it continues, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. Amen. For if a word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Again, speaking about this matter of atonement. After it was the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard it. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will, for he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. That's what they're speaking about, this end of this age and this, this glorious new covenant that was coming in through Christ, through the fulfilling of the messianic promises. But one has testified somewhere else, saying... What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now, now notice the power of what is being said here, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Now, common reading of our Bible says, oh, well, that's speaking to us. You know, we look around, we see sin, death, despair. Um, you know, we have mourning and crying. We're in this body of the flesh, and we think, oh, well, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. This is a common, modern, 21st century failure. Again, I believe many preterists have been drawn into this, and they look to this 
heavenly reality. I know Brother Paul Rakowitz has spoken about this, which I believe is a big error. He's speaking about the realities of heaven as something that we have not yet attained. And I know that's a futurist presupposition. These are realities we have not yet attained. That's not, Paul was not speaking about the realities that when we biologically die and we go to heaven to be with Jesus. He was speaking about when they died to the law and when that temple had finally been brought down and it was revealed that God's people were not those that stuck to the law as Hymenaeus and Philetus erroneously taught. That the resurrection had occurred prior to the temple being destroyed, therefore the law still stands val valid and binding. No. That's what they were waiting for. If the temple is brought down, God's true people have been revealed. And that's why in Second Timothy, when he's speaking about the, the uh, heresy of Hymenaeus and Philetus, he says that God knows those who are his, quoting from the book of Numbers. You see, that's what the, the big argument was about during this already but not yet, this transition period, was who indeed are the people of God? Should we come under the law of Moses? Should we put our stock and our faith in everything that the law of Moses is going to bring forth? As a high priest enters into that temple year after year, offering atonement for the people of God? Or, is indeed Christ right? Is that one-time sacrifice on that cross pointing to the future judgment and resurrection of Israel? Is that going to be the one that we're going to put our faith and our stock in? Which one is it? Creation is groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. Who is it, as we read in Romans chapter 8? The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, in speaking again about the resurrection, says that, I have not yet already attained it. And he's not pointing to biological death. He's pointing to the coming of the Lord. He said, we who are alive at that time in 1 Corinthians 15. He believed wholeheartedly that he would be a part of that generation. Yet today, there are Christians, there are atheists, there are agnostics that are confused by this futuristic view of, why didn't Jesus come when he said he would? You see, that's the problem we must come against. We must teach and preach the gospel in its proper context. If he did not, if Jesus did not fulfill the promises that he had given to the people he was speaking to, if God did not fulfill the promises to those we had given them to, speaking about Israel, I'm sorry, but me living in 2014, I'm just not interested then. Because this God, this Christ, has not proven fruitful and faithful. If indeed that's what you believe. I don't believe that. The Apostle Paul was talk talking about the resurrection of Israel. The resurrection that was promised to Israel by the prophets. That one day you will not be divided from God by the law. One day this temporal promise, this, this blessing, but is a, a curse in disguise. As we read about through the law, the law was good and holy, yet the law brought forth death. So it was a blessing and a curse. Just like in Deuteronomy where Moses seeks to lay the law before them. He says, this day I set before you a blessing and a curse. If you choose to abide, you will live. If you choose not to abide, you will die. Man is a sinner. Man will not abide. Israel was given a law that they could not hold to because it was pointing to the necessity and the need for Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is the gospel. That's the truth that we're reading about in Scripture. So, hopefully I've given you enough information to show you that what this is speaking about is God bringing the people into his presence. For example, in John 14, Christ promises that it, as I go, I will come back. He was speaking about that full atonement, the full bringing in of the people as they were having that veiled expression with God, that already but not yet, that temporal you know, covenant. The time was coming where they would see him face to face. That is, the uh, writer of the epistle of John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says that we do not see him as he is, but we know that we will. And when we see him, we will become as he is. You see, a lot of people have made this, again, an individual promise about someday in the future. This is not what it was speaking about. It was speaking to a bunch of people, the elect, who understood what it was like to be under the law. Understood what it was like to live by the, the death of the law. Feeling convicted by 613 laws each and every day. Looking to the temple as the place where atonement is done. Looking to the temple as the reality that the law stood binding and valid. And they were waiting to be released from that. That was when they would see God face to face. They seen God through a veil of glory. You know, the temple had those two veils that would stand up. We know that at Golgotha it says that the veil was ripped. That is the outer garment as Don, um, Alan Bondar has brought forth at Don Preston's Preterist Pilgrim Weekend this year. That it was the outer veil that was ripped that you could see from Golgotha. 
But the inner veil still stood. That was the already but not yet. Now the Gentiles had the opportunity to come into the general assembly of the holy place. However, the way to the holy of holies had not yet been revealed. That would happen at the coming of the Lord, at the judgment, at the resurrection of Israel. That's the hope of Scripture. That is the glory of God. So, being that I've, I believe I've laid that before you and uh, very clearly now, a common question that comes up is, well then what was it like to live in that waiting for the re revelation of the sons of God while holding to the promise, being raised up in heavenly places as we read in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 2, or uh, you know, as we read in Romans 8.30, that they were already receiving the promise. They were already living in this redeemed state. Yet they were still waiting for more. So what is that reality? What did they have and what were they waiting for? And I believe this has been drawn out by many writers uh, within preterism. And I know uh, within futurism they have this already but not yet. And that is the you know, inaugurated kingdom theology. Being that we are in the kingdom, the kingdom is being manifested, yet it is not being manifested in its full glory until God either A, uh, according to some, renews the earth or destroys the earth and creates a new earth. Um, it depends, again, who you speak to. Um, I believe that what was being renewed, the creation that was being renewed, was the people of God and the way that the people of God were approaching God. Under the old covenant, they were approaching God through a veiled experience. What was going to happen at the revelation of the sons of God was they were going to see God face to face. They were going to be made like him, glorified like God, and not be under a law, but instead approach God with freedom and liberality. So, of course, in Christ. Let me make that clear. I'm not a universalist. So, what does it mean to be raised up? And um, if I may, I'll share some uh, an article I was reading this morning. Um, I, I found this article on uh, Planet Preterist by uh, Parker, actually. I've, I've spoke to him a couple times. And um, this is the Examining the Soteriological Implications of the Already But Not Yet. So I'm going to share this article with you, and uh, maybe we'll pick through it and talk about some of the details. Christians today take great joy and comfort in declaring the completed work of Christ for salvation. In fact, such blessedness and assurance is naturally assumed and taken for granted. However, a careful examination of the already but not yet construct reveals a proclamation of a completed salvation and redemption can only be justified from a preterist perspective. I recently had a conversation with a man claimed that I claimed that he present he has present victory over death even though he wasn't a preterist. He pointed to Second Corinthians chapter five, verses one through four, that say, Look, the blessings we now have at physical death. When I pointed to the man that the passage was a resurrection passage, which 2 Corinthians chapters 3 through 5 are speaking about, again, being clothed, that the Apostle Paul did not want to be found unclothed, again pointing to the reality of the temple. You see, regard, you know, um, of the tribe of Benjamin, um, zealous for the law, and he would have understood that being clothed by the law was a blessing and a curse. While, yes, it produced death in the people of Israel and those that were under it, it also brought them into a veiled expression of God. Other nations didn't have it. You know, it talks about in Ephesians, the Gentiles were in the world without God, without hope, because they, this had not been revealed to them. This had been known to, known to Israel. So the Apostle Paul knows these realities, knows this truth, and now he's coming into the glories and the truth of Christ, yet... He does not want to be found unclothed. When judgment comes, when God comes in judgment, he does not want to be found naked. What does that remind you of? <laughs> that garden experience, amen? He, he does not want to be found like that in shame and naked, not clothed by God. He doesn't want to provide his own righteousness and put fig leaves on himself, so to speak. But instead, he wants to be found with that proper atonement, that proper judgment, that proper, uh, the sound reasoning, which is in Christ. He wants to be found covered and clothed by Christ, which would come at that judgment in A.D. 70. That would be the full revelation of who the sons of God are. You have to start thinking of clothing being, clothing is given to those who are welcomed into the kingdom of God. You see this in the parable of the wedding banquet. You see this in Revelation chapter 22. You see this throughout the whole Bible. So when the Apostle Paul says, I do not desire to be found unclothed, he's speaking about the clothing of the two covenants, old covenant, new covenant. Again, read through 2 Corinthians chapters 3 through 5. I am forever indebted to Alan Bondar for bringing that out and drawing that out in a personal study right there in his backyard by his pool. I'll never forget just sitting down and reading through 2 Corinthians chapters 3 through 5 and seeing the corporate understanding, not a personal premise. What is the Apostle Paul saying to the corporate people of God? I'm telling you, that's an amazing read that I, I ask you to look into this week. So, continuing. Then I affirmed to him that if the resurrection was not a present new covenant reality, 
then he cannot yet possess a house made with hands eternal in the heavens, 2 Corinthians 5.1. He cannot be clothed with a house from the heavens, 2 Corinthians 5.2. He cannot, he shall be found naked at death, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. And he does not have mortality swallowed up in life, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. While the dialogue ser uh, seriously challenged, called into question the man's present covenantal benefits, it also illustrated the surrounding confusion of the soteriological state for God's people within the futurist system. Born under the law. We know that Christ was born and all the apostles were born under the covenantal system of the Mosaic law. Galatians 4.4 4 speaks about Jesus being born of a woman and born under law. And the apostle Peter talks about how the, the um, forefathers of Israel could not even bear this uh, law. Acts chapter 15 verse 10. Man's fault, that system was incapable of dispensing any true benefit of completed salvation and atonement. Hebrews chapter 9, 9 through 10. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 8 and 10, 1 through 14. During the age of his existence, the law system functioned as a kind of replica model that taught about and pointed to a heavenly system that would someday deliver the full blessedness of the messianic redemption to the chosen. The hopes of salvation, sonship, heaven, and many other great blessings were foreshadowed to mankind under the old system, but were never delivered by it. You see, the question for citizens of the New Testament age, therefore, is as follows. Did Christ's blood sacrifice at A.D. 30 complete actually complete the atonement process, delivering a full and complete salvation to the people of God? The shocking answer is no. You see, and that is drawn out in this article. And again, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, post this article on Facebook. I'm going to share it with anybody that writes me an email. If you're listening and you want that article by Parker, um, amazing article. Again, I, I think that that stuff needs to be drawn out, the already but not yet. And what was being experienced, again, in that time, as I believe they were coming into that full reality, what I will do is, uh, if I could... Uh, Use an allegory from Egypt, right? Um, imagine being of those people that have been told that if you put the blood on your door, you will be saved. And you have already seen the works and the truth of God, so you, you understand this to be true. So you exercise your faith, and you wipe that blood on your doorpost. So the night that that angel of death passed over, you would have had faith in that, that blood. Well, hopefully you would have. You know, Again, if you had doubt, then I think that could have been uh, your worst enemy, because we know according to Scripture, even the book of Hebrews, that uh, without faith it is impossible to please God. So I believe it was exercising the faith of putting the paint on your doorpost or the blood on your doorpost um, that caused that atonement. However, we know that the full reality would not have come until the angel of death indeed did pass over and they said, God is faithful, right? So now bring that reality to the events from the cross to AD 7. And what you see happening is while the saints are exercising faith in the crucified Christ, exercising faith that they've seen this man raised from the dead, we've seen him, we touched him. Now, we're looking toward the reality of A.D. 70, or they were looking toward the reality of the coming of the Lord. They didn't call it A.D. 70. But they were looking toward the reality of the coming of the Lord to finalize the process, to bring in the full redemption, that God was going to raise up Israel out of law. God was going to, again, uh, in, what is it, First uh, Corinthians 15, I believe, or... Um, I mean, there's a couple passages in Revelation. You read about how you will not be complete without them. And what this was speaking to was all those that were coming to share in the realities of Christ, whether they were Jew or Gentile, would not yet be made complete until the full promise had been given to those of Israel, the dead ones of Israel. Imagine following a covenant your entire life. You die under that covenant in faith that God is going to reveal the promises to you, yet you do not receive the promises of the Messiah. You know, we read about Simeon in, in the book of Luke, how he waited to see the consolation of Israel. He waited to see the redemption of Jerusalem. And that was Jesus, Jesus being born in the world. So imagine being born under that and then dying without seeing that promise. The promise still stands for the dead ones of Israel. Otherwise, that's just a really shoddy promise. You know, okay, so that only worked while I was alive? No, the promise was also to the dead of Israel. And that's the argument in 1 Thessalonians 4 and many other passages in Scripture where they, it seems that they're referring to a dead group of people. 1 Corinthians 15 is speaking about the dead ones of Israel. You know, what about those that had died before this? And what we know what was happening in the early church was a Gentile superiority. So the Gentiles all of a sudden have this attitude where it's like, you know, we're coming in through Christ. We're blessed. You know, we didn't ever, we've never been under the law. We don't have to subscribe to the law. And you have, you know, Israel saying, no, 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 the promises still stand for those that were under law. You know, the dead ones still have a promise. They're still going to be raised, but they're still going to be seated at, in, in the presence of God through Jesus, even though they can't exercise their faith in a, you know, because they're not biologically alive. 
And and that's what the Apostle Paul is arguing in 1 Corinthians 15. That's what was being waited for during that transition period from the cross to A.D. 70. The saints were walking in the fullness, trusting in the fullness, hoping in the fullness, yet waiting on that eternal inheritance, the full reality of God's presence. That's the story of Scripture, my friends. See how beautiful that is? <laughs> I, I tell you, I really do think there's power in the narrative. Um, one of the exciting things I'm looking to do here at Bluepoint, as I've mentioned a couple times on the broadcast, is uh, bring my church and bring you, hopefully, if you're, you're in, um, inclined to tune in, is to uh, bring us through the Bible. Bring us through the full narrative of the Scriptures. You know, where does this start? In the ancient Near East? Then let's start there. Understand that context. Understand what this meant. What did it mean for God to choose Adam? What did, is that saying to the world? What is that reality for us today? What did it mean then? What does it mean for us today? And understanding that and then carrying that through to the people of Israel and why the prophets were speaking to Israel. What were they prophesying? What was the reality Israel was longing for? And then finally, when we get to Jesus, what does this stuff mean? What were the promises? What would it look like when it came into its full reality? And ultimately, what does it look like? Why do the preterists say we're in the new heavens and new earth? What does that mean? And I believe as we go through the story beautifully, I think uh, it'll draw out a lot of the issues. And it'll allow us to explain our presuppositions, allow us to explain why we harp on certain definitions. Um, one of the things I'm looking to do here next March is um, during our Power of Preterism conference, we're going to put out a, um, a full Council of God storytelling. And it's going to be uh, hopefully me and another futurist, uh, or not another because I'm not a futurist, but me and a futurist. And we're going to tell the story of Scripture. It will not be a debate. It will be a discussion. And we'll tell the full story of Scripture. Um, from our, our vantage points, our perspectives, and allow for audience questions and allow for each other to challenge and question each other. However, not in a deb debate format. You know, I believe if we tell the full story, we'll begin to draw out these details. As I'm seeking to do with atonement, you know, Brother uh, Paul, Paul Rakowitz, you know, we disagree on this. And I know John Noe disagrees. And I know quite a few others, um, Charles Meek might disagree, and um, Kurt Simmons, and a lot of these guys. They all disagree with uh, AD 70 atonement. So I'm seeking to lay before you the full narrative of why I believe that, and I, I don't believe that's wrong. You know, I know Paul had drawn out his understanding of Romans chapter 9, which, again, uh, as I read through the book of Hebrews, I just do not see that. I see it comparing systems. Again, in Hebrews chapter 8, we're comparing old and new covenants. I don't believe Hebrews chapter 9 all of a sudden changed topic. It's talking about the old and new covenant. The old covenant coming to its full close at the end of that age, that present evil age, which would happen in AD 70 at the destruction of the temple. You see, that's that's what we're seeing through Scripture. Um, if I may uh, share with you some thoughts, I've been reading through this uh, Free Grace broadcaster, a pretty uh, powerful Reformed booklet um, on atonement, and uh, they had a lot of cool stuff to say. And I want to see if I can find this one part I wanted to share with you. Um, the intent of Christ's death was uh, something I was reading this morning. You know, and obviously it's talking about ransoming the sinners from death, and ultimately we know that. Even from the Apostle Paul's, Apostle Paul's writings, death had not yet been defeated during that transitionary period um, from the cross to AD 70. So to say that atonement was complete at the cross, yet death had not yet been defeated, huh? You know, and I, 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 it just doesn't work. That system just does not work. Unless, of course, you're pushing atonement to biological death when, you know, as a futurist, many futurists, will argue when the glorified body is received by the believer. And that is, uh, you know, at judgment and this new re new earth reality, new heavens and new earth, being brought at a future, yet future coming of the Lord. Again, this is not contextual. This is not what the Bible is teaching. Um, you know, we must follow the scheme of Scripture, not uh, our personal desires and wants. So what we're seeing is a full plan of redemption. Not an act of redemption, a plan of redemption being drawn out through the work of the Messiah. We see this in the Old Testament of the prophecies of the Messiah, and we see this in the New Testament as the reality of the Messianic times. We see that the Messiah came, he brought forth the, the promise, he died on the cross as a ransom for the sinners, yet the full atonement was being, was being fulfilled as a plan of redemption. So that's my, uh, my piece. Again, I'll probably be writing an article on this because I still have a lot to say on the topic of atonement. But I believe uh, I believe this is very important. I believe it's important to understand the already but not yet. Understand what they had uh, already received and what they were waiting for. Again, Abraham, you know, it talks about in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham was waiting for a city um, to dwell in. And we know that that's the new covenant according to Galatians 4, um, Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Uh, the, this reality of the new Jerusalem was this uh, restored Zion as promised by the prophets. And uh, was this restored city of God where 
you know, uh, I think Augustine draws this out great, where the people will see God face to face, will dwell with God, God will be their peace, and they will live out the realities of fully atoned, fully redeemed, not in bondage to law, not in bondage to the, um, the, the carnality of man, which always brings forth death, whether it was the law of Moses or it's, you know, other systems that man has created to uh, kind of atone for man. If it's not pointing to Jesus for atonement, it's not, it's not sufficient. And, and that's an area where we could agree whether we believe in a futuristic or a preteristic understanding of atonement. Um, I am a proud preterist. I believe all my atonement I put stock in at the cross in AD 70. I believe uh, both of them are a part of the plan of scripture or the plan of redemption. And um, I believe in believing in those things is what allows us to live the glorious reality of the new heavens and new earth. Amen? So, I hope I bring clarity. I hope I brought forth clarity. I hope I uh, help you understand the already but not yet and what the saints were living in and what they were looking forward to and ultimately what we live in as the glorious realities today. I'm going to end in prayer, and I hope uh, this week you will take the opportunity to either email me or send me a message on Facebook. Please start sharing this show. Um, I believe uh, I believe it's important. I believe it's important for us to... Um, clarify these things and, and speak these things into the world around us. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for all the blessings that we have in you. I thank you for the reality that we have in and through Jesus Christ, that we may approach you, Lord, and see you face to face, that we have the freedom, Lord, to approach you, and we don't have to feel condemned or punished or that our sins are stuck to us, that we cannot remove them, Lord, that we know we can ultimately offer them up and thank you for your atonement and your redeeming work and your righteousness alone, Lord. Thank you for becoming what we could not be. Thank you for allowing us to follow you, Lord. And thank you for the reality that I can enable people to listen to this broadcast, Lord, and know that as they endeavor to follow me, they follow who I follow, Lord God. Give you all the glory. Thank you for your truth, your wisdom, and your spirit, Lord. We offer up our prayers in and through Jesus Christ. Amen. A reality that Trip Lee brings out in his uh, rap song. I know some people do not like the rap I play on this broadcast. However, I'm a hip-hop guy. That's what I listen to. Again, I play the songs because they have a meaning behind them. If you heard the song I played in the beginning, it was speaking about how a real man bows down to authority, the authority of God. That man, being fully alive, is bowing down before the throne of God, is seeing the truth of God in his life. I believe that without a doubt. And I believe for in their own truths, the truth that they have created, their own vision not seeing through the Spirit. And Triple E draws that out in this song where he says that we must seek the truth of Scripture, the truth of the Word of God, rather than the truth that we may have been taught. I invite you all to listen to the song and live in that reality this week. Go in peace and may God bless you. Yeah, yeah. This time we direct our attention towards the Creator. Cats got Mr. Seth up. Forget about what you heard or what you thought or what they told you. And let's figure out the right way to get to know. Yeah, yeah. Look, hey, I don't know what they told you, but if it don't match up, shit is holy word, then homie, they need to back up, shit. They pretend like they get them, they twisting facts up. That's why we digging up scriptures and know the master kick. Homie, we have to if we want to get past us. Homie, they we know being what we learned from the past. I really hope you're listening, my listeners, because after I want to see a clear like a big screen plasma. Okay, I'm putting cats I see. They don't really know the Lord. Don't you the extreme. Think I'm going overboard, but, but they ain't read a page of the place where he spoke for himself in the maddest man. That's what I be quoting for, but he don't exist now. That don't even make sense. The surface a man to be somebody had to paint this. Get the big bang and evolution and face this. Well, the king of kings and all the revival creation. Some say he made it to lift and run like a clock. Now, he controls every soul and every action on the black. Right. In heaven, city, white, white. In heaven, on his white, white. Surprise in his eyes. Right. No. 
L-O-R-D, all capital. Watch your trip and not your trip after the mass appeal of people to people who pigeonhole Jesus a pacifist. Whoa, a prophet with no power in his past was here. We preach against the views that arrogant profess to have of him. Meaning the deifying of Jesus is nothing more than an accident. But the Bible's the proof that refutes and gives us back to him. Daddy was, what is daddy was? Homo Uziah, God man. Sense of safe us all, daddy love. Yeah. Set us free from sin, shut it down like it was not a God. Anyone disbelieving this group may want to back it up or back it up. Because the son of man is coming, that's what's up. And at his judgment seat is where you'll see his holy wrath is yeah. But God is love, that don't mean he, we can't take his resume. Just because he let you read don't mean he won't take his breath away. I don't know what you heard, I don't know what you heard.